Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business, tech, and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. Today on The Drops Podcast, Matt Tumbleson is here to talk about product market fit and consumer packaged goods. This is part one of a three-part series. Let's start the show. All right, so we have Matthew. Matt, do you go with Matthew or Matt? Matt's what I like to be called. Matthew is too formal. <laughs> That's what I thought. But I like to ask that question. We are recording, right? Sorry, let me start over. So Matt is a builder of things. He built things as a founder of his own software startup, as a lead marketer at companies like Grubhub and Rappi, and as an internal entrepreneur for the world's largest CPG company, Procter & Gamble. His scrappy, always-be-moving methods favor quick action over waterfall-style planning. It's paid off. Matt helped IPO Grubhub in 2014, sold his own startup to Golden State Capital in 2018, supported Rappi to achieve a $5 billion valuation, and he developed three new brands worth billions in potential sales for Procter & Gamble, P&G. When he's not building, Matt shares his knowledge as an adjunct instructor for General Assembly's Enterprise Division, where he works with Fortune 500 companies interested in learning about digital marketing, product management, and entrepreneurship. And I'm super excited to invite Matt to this podcast. That's actually where we met, General Assembly. And B, tell us why we're talking to Matt today. As many people who know me know, I don't actually leave the house very often anymore because not only do I work from home, I have a kid and a wife who make me really, really excited not to leave the home. So having said that, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to a conference in Nebraska and I was talking on product market fit. No surprise there. That's something Sam and I talk about all the time. But then some folks came up to me and were just like, hey, so you know all this stuff about tech. Well, what does it mean to have a product market fit in CPG brands? And so I immediately texted Tam and said, we have to do an episode on this. I was like, we have to find someone who's an expert. Let's do an episode on this because the people want to know. And Tam, being who she is, knew someone, and that's how we came here. So Matt, thank you so much. You're you're going to make me look good to some folks that I'm definitely going to send this episode to after I know exactly what it looks like to have product market fit for CPG brands. And so that's how we're here. I'm super happy to have this conversation because I'm glad that the question came up, number one, that people were interested in product market fit for CPGs. And that when I just finished talking to Matt, maybe a couple days before, and I was like, well, this is a perfect opportunity to have this conversation because I don't think this conversation exists a lot. PMF for CPG. So it's an interesting topic. And I'm about to learn a lot. This is going to be a master class. All right. This is going to be fun. Okay. First question for Matt. Say hello. And how do you define product market fit, PMF? Yeah, good question. And thanks thanks for having me. B, nice to meet you. Tam, always, always great to see you. I want to preface with, I have my own opinions on this. And my background is, is Tam, you mentioned, it's also in startup software. So, so we're kind of in the same bucket. The only difference is I had the opportunity to work inside of Procter & Gamble and see the way that things are done in a completely different world and what from software and startups 
may apply, what may not apply, what I think it is, and then come out on the other side where I am now after working with them for a couple of years and having some, maybe we'll say tidbits of insight. By no means am I the expert in all things CPG, but I do like to think that I have a unique perspective. And there's quite a few disagreements inside of the CPG world of how to do this, how to figure out product market fit. And I was happy to contribute to some of those disagreements and disruptions and then share it here with you all today. So for me, I start with CPG. I always think of a problem. What is the problem? What is the consumer dealing with? What are they going through? What are they looking for from a solution? It's really similar in the software and startup world. There has to be a problem. A lot of people have to have it. And once we figure out what that problem is, the solution and the solutioning is quite different than in the software and startup world where we don't get to optimize a lot once we are at distribution. We have to do a lot more of that kind of earlier on. So although certain things like concepts and consumer feedback and iteration are happening in the development phase, once we get to market, we can't iterate like you can with software. So there's so much more work to be done on that upfront product market fit. And for me, what it means is we've identified the pain point, it's clear. We've identified the best solution. So we've put a few different solutions, if not dozens or more in front of consumers. We heard which ones they liked the most and the one that won, the one that was the number one for them that really said, hey, this solves my problem. This is the best one. It is so superior. And it is so good that they are willing to spend enough money for us to then obviously turn a profit because there's an entrepreneurial aspect here as well, right? We got to build a business around this thing. So we have the pain point, the solution, it scratches that itch and people are willing to pay for it. And once I figure that out upfront, then I feel like it's a little bit de-risked and we've reached some form of product market fit. We're still not in the market, but we've de-risked when we end up getting into the market. Um, basically let's say this is CPG is easy to get off the shelf at, at Target, Walmart, right? If you can get it off the shelf, it's probably a CPG. Yeah. You know, it really is. It's consumer packaged goods, which is what most people know it as. Um, also FMCG, fast moving consumer goods. And like you said, it's things that you would go to a Target or a Walmart and you would buy off the shelf. It's basically manufactured products that are mass produced. And then you generally go to a store and make a purchase. They tend to be on the cheaper side. You can see things like tobacco are considered CPG. We don't touch that. Food is CPG as well. So you've got your Nestle's and Mars of the world and Pepsi. Your potato chips are considered CPG. The world that I, I tend to live in is less food and more actual product. If you're going to put it on your body, like potions, pills, all that kind of stuff. You know, something my wife and I debate all the time is how data can lead you astray. So for instance, let's pretend you put that group of people together and you're like, oh, they really like this product, but let's pretend you had a little bit of bias on your own end. So like everyone who's in that room who's agreeing with you have a similar profile. One of the brands I was thinking of is one of those health fitness brands. And so it's super popular amongst Gen Z and above, and then also primarily people who are signed female at birth. 
But if you take that product right outside of that group of people, you may not have enough people to sustain it. So one, how do you go through making sure you have the right people in the room to help you get the right information about whether that product is a, a good fit? And then secondly, once you actually start to harden it, how do you do risk from an economic perspective? Because I think especially with packaged goods, as I was doing more research on it, it can be so expensive just to get a sample package out there. So I'm kind of curious how you kind of go about that as well. Good questions. And I think there's two ways to look at this. And fortunately, again, my background being in both startups and this gigantic company helps me talk at least a little bit about both. And on the one hand, there's how would a startup do this, which is what I always ask myself. I'm always thinking, what is the cheapest, fastest, scrappiest way that we can possibly get to this? I want to look at next week. I don't want to look at next year. And so that's one way to look at it. The other is the gigantic company that has millions of dollars to just hire a company and say, hey, here's what we're looking for in terms of a profile. Now, on the startup side, this is me asking my friends. This is me making sure that I'm finding as broad of a spectrum of potential purchasers, let's say, um, or people with that problem as I possibly can to make sure that my market is big enough. If it's a really niche product or a really niche potential market, there has to be some kind of other variable for us to determine to go into that area. If it's something that three people have an issue with or a problem, but they're willing to spend a ton of money, maybe, you know, from a startup perspective. From a gigantic company perspective, especially within PNG and the insights organization within it, I don't talk on behalf of PNG, by the way. This is just my observations from working inside of the organization. When they work with outside agencies to try and find some of these consumers who are suffering with these pain points, we make sure to get as broad of a range of consumers as possible. I would say maybe three plus years ago, it was quite just from my observation, what are people in the Midwest dealing with? That's because that's where PNG is. And so it was so much easier just to say, even like locally, hey, do you have this pain point? Come in and work with us. Give us your feedback. Once COVID happened and things became virtual, it became significantly easier to get a much larger range of people across not only the U.S., but also in other countries to talk to, see how big this thing is globally, and really understand the depth of the pain point and the potential size of the audience and how it could be either repositioned, how there might be a feature or a future option that could benefit maybe like a sub audience within a larger audience. Um, and so it became easier and it, it was almost standard practice at PNG where it's like, we're looking for all Americans, at least in, in my group, do they suffer from this? Is this something that they're going to benefit from and how would we change it if we were to find that it doesn't benefit one particular group. And obviously our goal is anyone who walked into Walmart, which is everyone in this country, we want to have products and solutions for them. So on the startup side, again, it's just making sure that you do your diligence. And for me, it's like 10 people, I'm good enough. On the PNG side, we're looking at hundreds, if not thousands, to make sure that we're truly understanding the pain point. From the economic standpoint, that's all about risk. And there's two elements of risk one is time and the other is actual individual safety of the people who are going to be using the products. If it's a product that has an active ingredient in it, I use an example of this one eczema skincare brand that I was working on. It had colloidal oatmeal in it. You cannot just be experimenting with consumers if something has an active ingredient in it. In general, we can't just be treating our consumers like guinea pigs. So it's hard because we want to go fast. We want to try different things, but there are certain like 
bases or like basic elements that are just a must be. And if you can't use that must be and turn a business or turn a profit or figure out how to optimize it in some way that provides a new additional benefit, then you're probably looking at something more like a startup in healthcare, one of the giant medical companies. We're looking at much more like over-the-counter things that currently have been tested. So with that brand, for example, we couldn't mess around with colloidal oatmeal. It had to be this percent. It had to be tested with our own internal safety teams. There's not much we could do. Now, what we could do is put other ingredients in that could be tested with consumers, like different herbal ingredients, different essential oils, in a variety of different ways to see what makes this great for a consumer. And I love Native, the brand that PNG eventually bought. The founder, Moyes, he went to Etsy and he just found someone who already did a lot of that work, was already selling deodorant with essential oils in it, and asked them if he could just white label it. In that process, it was significantly easier to experiment because the, the basic product was safe, it was tested, it was good to go. And all he was really doing was identifying a new audience, a new brand, and some other potential claims around the natural nature of, of this deodorant. And then took something that was an Etsy marketplace seller, a pretty small market, and extre extremely exploded the distribution by doing direct-to-consumer and really just leveraging digital marketing to really expand that. I love this exchange. You touched on so many things there that I want to break it down a little bit. And also, I think we're going to come back to native as a test case as well, right? We're talking about product market fit, and there's these three prongs to product market fit. The standard um, design thinking alignment, right? That sweet spot of desirability, viability, and feasibility. And you touched on something that there are constraints in the world of seats, right? That even though desirability is there, feasibility may not be there because of these regulatory constraints, right? We can't test on live customers. And then you also touched on, well, is the customer willing to pay? That's on the viability part, right? Can we create a market? And there are adjacent. I work in um, healthcare and one of my clients is in pharmaceuticals. Another one of these industries that are extremely hard to bring something to market without ex um, um, due diligence and R&D, right? How do you test drug? Right. And when you're talking about sizing it um, in pharmaceuticals, you know, there can be a really grave illness that a million. Right. Three people out of one million. Um, I, I was talking to someone who had that kind of a test case. How do you develop a product? How do you test that product? How do you price that product in a market when three people out of a million have this very grave and very part of that is you're talking about distribution channels being something like Walmart and a company like P&G. Let's just stick on that Unilever or any of these companies. And if you're a company like P&G and you're saying, I want all of the customers or as many of the customers of Walmart or Target as possible, I have to be not only in the same vertical or same category of all the categories within Walmart, but multiple categories within it. Meaning the cleaning category at Walmart is urgents or, or cleaning products for clothing. So laundry detergent. But then there's, I need gentle, I need unscented, I need this, I need that. How do you, and how do you grapple with that about there's a problem, there's a market, the sub-market, start first. Talk to me how you break that down when you're just approaching a, a new problem or new opportunity to look for. So you bringing up the detergents and the home care, that's a perfect example of an aisle that I would work on identifying a need that's unmet today. And if it's in a category that already has a subcategory like 
fabric hair, which is, you know, your, your tides of the world. Um, I don't need to reinvent tide actually at PNG. And this is something interesting, right? If, if I'm looking as a startup, there might be an opportunity there and quite a few have popped up less packaging. Maybe there's, there's an audience that's not currently being tailored to because it's not big enough for PNG, which is an interesting scenario, right? Where PNG says, Oh, that might be a hundred thousand people. It might be worth a couple million dollars to a startup founder or an entrepreneur. We're going to, we're going to go there. We're going to make this product and we're going to deliver the solution for them. For a much larger company like a PNG or a Unilever, they're going after very, very large, generally broad based audiences. I remember one time hearing, and this is before I even worked at, at PNG, who's the audience for Tide? And it was anyone with a washing machine. And, and that is how a company of that size really thinks. As a startup founder, when you're trying to identify product market fit, you don't have the luxury of just saying, the market is literally anyone with a house. Anyone who drives a car, it's, you don't have that luxury. You're looking for pain points that are unmet. And so you have to really dig in and understand the smaller audiences, the more nuanced audiences. And that's where an aisle like Fabricare, again, a startup founder would say lots of opportunity. A really big CPG would say, we've already done this. We need to do different scents. We need to do for your car. We need to do for your shower. We need to take the things that we already own and move into other categories that we don't currently dominate. They're thinking in a very different way than we are when we're talking about product market fit. They get the luxury of starting with assuming they already have it. We don't get that, right? We need to actually do the data, do the work, and make sure that when we're creating something new, that we know that it's something that consumers want, that they'll pay for, and that um, they'll continue to want even after their first use. I want to drill down into that just a little bit, right? Because you said something really important, which is these brands like CBDs, really large brands, don't necessarily have the luxury to tackle a problem that a, that a startup would. What does that do to the decision-making at a large company that says not big enough for us to care about, but also understanding the back of your mind that all big things start off, right? Uber, a large category, was once a very niche. But that is, how, do, how does a company de-risk the future of large M&A purchases, right? Because that is what it leads to. Let's talk about Dollar Shave Club. This is the result of companies not prioritizing the small ideas that are not hugely scalable, that aren't immediately a billion dollar company. What's the, what's the internal, take me into a room <laughs> at P&G or a, a hypothetical room, the, um, a CPG company about decisions like that. Yeah, it's, it's a frustrating conversation for someone like me who is, I will find a solution to any problem because I'm going fast. I see there's someone who's got a pain point. I want to solve for it. I believe that there's money to be made and it's win-win, right? With our feasibility, desirability, and viability, that's value for all. The business unit that I was in was actually the one that was tasked with developing new brands for PNG and the other large enterprises like the Unilevers and Johnson & Johnson's of the world that I've worked with, it tended to be the same. They were the ones who wanted to uh, take my advice, wanted to work with founders, really saw value in that. Now, in practice, it's a little different because you come into an organization that has over a hundred years of successes and gets to stand on those successes and at the same time has so much to lose if one thing goes wrong. So the risk averse culture 
is to protect the business at all costs, which I 100% understand. If I was the largest shareholder or the smallest shareholder in that company, I would appreciate that the culture of the company is to value that investment. Now, as someone who wants to build things fast and recognizes needs of consumers, it's difficult because, Tam, like you said, I see the Ubers of the world. I saw the Grubhubs and Seamless of the world and the Rappies and all the other startups that started out as, I remember hearing the stories of our founder at, at Grubhub going door to door at restaurants in Chicago and saying, hey, I'm developing this platform. Give me your menu and I will digitize it for you. And he was just door to door. And I always think of that because... Obviously, the company became wildly successful and then led to Uber Eats and, and DoorDash and a lot of other copycats. And so I imagine that is how the birth of something great begins. It starts as something small and then gets big. That mentality is learned and earned by getting the cuts and scrapes and bruises of being a founder and making things and failing and like just dusting yourself off and moving forward, it becomes a part of just what we do. When you follow the Princeton into business school, into the ABM role, into just maintaining and you almost like, a, like an apprenticeship, see what your boss did contribute a little bit more potential new idea. And you do that for 20, 30 years. The idea of just completely starting over or throwing a wrench into the way things are done is almost impossible to understand. That's something that startups do. We don't do that. So that's who's in the room is people who have been trained to protect the mothership at all costs, as again, they should be. But that's also one of the biggest issues in developing something new in those organizations, because the way that they're going to do it is the way that someone with 30 years of experience running one or two brands and growing them by two to 3% every year would develop something. They're thinking we need hundreds of millions of dollars. We're going to get all the Nielsen research on the planet. And I saw an opportunity to take all of those tools that they have. I mean, just to log into Nielsen and be able to see like almost real-time data for store sales and then go to Amazon and see what people are searching and run a quick test on Google and see if this product is something people are interested in. To me, that was magical, but it was so frightening for a lot of my colleagues. So that meeting, you know, if you want to pitch an idea for something, one of the first things you have to say is it's huge. It's a really, really big pain point. And we are the ones who can solve it. And here's why I think we'll be able to do it. And here's my 27 point plan of how we're going to do it. That's what you have to do before you even pitch an idea, because immediately you're met with a no. That's not big enough. We, we looked at that before. I've seen that. That's not big enough. That's not big enough. That's how every single meeting ends. It's just 20 ideas, but that's not big enough. So what ends up happening is all of those small things that could lead to something significantly larger never get started. Those seeds don't get planted. What they want to do is to buy a tree that's already grown and then just bring it in and say, okay, now we have the revenue from that and we can count it as growth for ourselves. They say that they want to plant their own seeds. They want to be able to plant their own seeds, but I am not convinced that large companies will be able to do it on their own. I think they're going to need to look for outside support 
to plant those seeds for them and get it up to whatever size sapling you want that makes them comfortable. You're planting enough. So Matt, I totally agree with you. I think M&A is definitely the strategy that really large multinational companies employ because innovation is so difficult. I mean, that's the thesis that Tam and I continue to kind of come back to over and over again in the podcast is just that once you get to a certain size, innovation is what suffers. And so what ends up happening is that you have to acquire all of these companies to do the basic experimentation and innovation that you need to move forward. But one thing, Matt, that you mentioned here, you talked about what it looks like to convince somebody that this is a good idea. And it's primarily the positive side of it. What does it look like when you get into that room, you've done all this research, and it's like, actually, this isn't hidden. The Nielsen data says, actually, people really don't love this. The Twitter data is actually saying that they think this berry is terrible. We have to pivot. So what does it look like when that conversation happens? That's a good question. I had that happen recently while I was still working at, at P&G. And uh, by the way, I've shut down many products. And there's an, a unique trick that I found that helps you not have such a bad experience, which is to constantly have your next idea ready to go. When you invest everything in a single idea, you get so passionate about it that you almost become blind to all of the data that's telling you this might not be great. Something that I observed at PNG and I've seen in other companies before is just setting a, a cadence. Maybe it's once a month, maybe it's once every three months where this idea and this team that's working on an idea has to prove that it's still worthy to work on. And here's what data we believe we will get. If we reach this, we will continue. If we don't, we will shut down, which never happens. It's always, okay, let's actually talk about it. Let's see what's working. Let's see what's not working. And then we go from there. And the reason why it's important to have something else ready to go is so that you don't just say, well, we've invested this much. Let's keep going. There needs to be an opportunity cost that you are missing if you don't shut this down. So that way it's almost as neutral as possible. The best use of my time is continue this forward or work on this next thing and see if it's going to be good. So once I implemented that, or we as a team started talking about it that way, when something was shut down, it was a much easier conversation. Obviously there were people who had worked on things for two, three years that when shut down or even startups or myself, I've had my own outside of companies, my own ideas shut down or pivot dozens and dozens of them. And it's just, you get used to it. You build like a thicker skin, but just having a backup is really important to make sure that you're on to the next one. We always want to keep going, right? Now, I had a unique experience where we had all the data in the world that told us this area of the business, this thing that you're working on right now, this really small scrappy team, there was just three of us, two people from research and development and myself. And one of the people from research and development was an expert. She and her husband actually work in this category outside of the office on nights and weekends. And she's like, it's a huge opportunity. We look at the Nielsen data. It's not huge. It's a huge opportunity. We buy this data from IBIS or you name it. And it's like, okay, there might be something there. But the Nielsen data just kept telling us this is not big. This is not big. And that was kind of our North Star. So we, we didn't believe it. And this is one of the few times that I said, no, we're going to keep going. And our very small teams, yeah, we're going to keep going. And we ended up using a, a service where it actually puts you in touch with certain buyers from large organizations. You can say, I want to talk to a buyer from Walmart. I want a buyer from Target or whatever the company is. And I want to run this by them. And it's blind. You don't really know who they are. You just know their role. They don't know who you are. You just get to ask them questions. And we were like, how big is this market? And they're like, oh, it's about $3 billion, which over a billion was good for us to move forward on. 
And we went through all the data and they said, oh, most companies don't sell this specific data to Nielsen because it's so valuable to us. And so we as a team had to keep asking ourselves, why has no one worked on this specific category before? And then we started looking in the startup sphere, places where they can't afford the Nielsen data. And there's quite a few startups. There's quite a few companies working on this and they're going and they've got some really, really good technology and innovation. And then you look at the giant companies and they're not doing much there. And we made the hypothesis that it's because they're similar to us. There go. We have all this amazing data. We can just look at Nielsen. It tells us what we need to know. And if it's too small, we move on. And so we said, no, let's keep looking. And I'm not exactly sure where they are now. It was an incredibly fast moving project with a really good team, really small, scrappy team doing things. I was so proud of this team, the way that we made our own decisions. But on the one hand, we would shut things down if it reaches certain criteria. On the other, it didn't feel right. And so I, I would say sometimes you have to use your gut, which is the worst advice in the world. I hate saying that. But it is true. There's experience that backs that up. There's something missing and there's a mystery and a curiosity that you have to continue going. I think that's okay. And we did. And we ended up proving out that Nielsen was wrong. And it's a huge opportunity for us. Stay tuned for part two next week on The Drops. Thank you so much for listening to The Drops podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are The Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Drops Podcast.